Brilliant. So, Jeremy, uh, you are here in Barclays, an old stomping ground of yours. Uh, you were a graduate here, is that right? Yeah, I started at Barclays, believe it or not, in 1984, which is a long time ago. But I just hope the graduate training program has improved since then, because within about uh, 12 to 18 months, pretty much everybody had left. And right. you can understand, I'm sure, is there anyone from HR here? <laughs> no, there was the HR 24 years ago. Those days was, yeah, 34. Yeah. 34, sorry, yes. Yeah. It was a bit disorganized. A friend of mine, um, they used to send you on rotation to the different branches, which in those days were no computers, everything was done by hand. I know, it's like ancient history. And um, a friend of mine was stuck in some, you know, remote place, I don't know, uh, was it Sam? You said you're from Edmonton, so let's say he's from the Edmonton branch. And this guy was like desperate to get into the bright lights, and he was there for like six, seven months. And in the end, in desperation, he asked for an appointment with HR, and he went to see HR. Mr. Willis was the guy's name who was running the program, and he said, "Young man, this is Barclays. When it's time for you to move, you'll be told." But just to reassure you before you go back to where is it? You are Edmonton. Behind me, there's a big board, and every single person in Barclays Graduate Program is on it. And I'll tell you when it's time for you to move. So he looked at this guy's name, whatever it was, Fred Smith, and he said, uh, oh, I'm terribly sorry, your pin's fallen now. <laughs> so if he hadn't said anything, he'd probably still be in Barclays Edmonton to this day. <laughs> I'm sure it's all done very properly now. So you got moved on. How long were you at Barclays for? Yeah, just about a year. Just yeah. about a year. Before, before they got rid of me, uh, for incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and you, you went on to other things in banking? Yeah, I mainly worked for Credit Suisse uh, mm -hmm. in mainly in wealth management uh, for about 20-odd years. Um, the main place I worked actually was in Switzerland. Yeah. Then um, yeah, I ran the UK private banking here, and uh, then about 10 years ago I got a call from a headhunter saying, you know, would you, uh, forgive the pun, would you like to become a whore? And uh, <laughs> so, uh, some of you know there is a bank called C Hoare and Co. H O A R E. Right. And, uh, the spelling yeah, is important. It is. Yeah. 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 That's right. So um, it's a wonderful, marvelous family-owned bank, 350 years old. For those of you who know it, it's on the 11th generation of family ownership. And yeah, after 340 years, they decided to experiment with an outsider, so I was the first one, which was a real privilege. You didn't have to marry into the family. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, they wouldn't have wanted me anyway. <laughs> okay, and uh, and so that that was kind of very much sort of the, the, the top of the pile, isn't it? I mean, if you want to be well, a banker... There's also Bath as well. There's also yeah, I can't <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, it was a great place to work. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I guess there are a lot of perks to being a, a, a banker, are there? Uh, yeah, you get paid well, I guess, or at least in the old days you did in uh, sort of 20 years ago. Um, yeah, there are also some drawbacks. I mean, the, some of you can identify with this. The make, when you're the chief executive, obviously, Halls is a lot smaller than Barclays. Yeah, one of the things you seem to spend all your time dealing with is uh, our friends just up the road at the PRA and... FCA and FSA, so that's a real laugh a minute, Glenn. I can <laughs> so a lot of pressure as well. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's also an interesting job, and um, I really enjoy private banking as well. I mean, you get to deal with many of the world's wealthiest people and try and help them and advise them. That's really the, the most interesting part of banking is, I think, dealing with the clients. Yeah. So you grew up in a Christian home, is that right? Yeah, my father's idea of a summer holiday was to take us um, Bible smuggling in the USSR. Wow. So we used to do that every summer. Um, I thought that's what most people did on their summer holidays. <laughs> yeah. And I guess at that stage, you're kind of rubbing up against Christians for whom a living faith was very much energizing their lives, and that was yeah. attractive to you? 
Um, it struck me as why on earth were these people behind the Iron Curtain following a faith when they had every possible reason not to? I mean, very often the pastors were in labour camps, and if you went to church, some, I mean, Yugoslavia, for example, was, was more moderate, but in, especially in the USSR, then you were actively discriminated against. You couldn't go to university, you couldn't join the Young Communists, you couldn't get a job. So as a teenager, I mean, I was very small when we first went, but I was probably 18 when we, we stopped going. You, um, you just think, well, why, why do people do that? So this raised the kind of question of why, why would anyone want to believe in a modern scientific, uh, even Marxist age, dare, dare we say. Yeah. And so, uh, so around about age 18, you would say that at, the, uh, at that point you had already owned the faith for yourself. It was something that you... Uh, yeah, I guess the, the reason that I, um, I, I, I became a Christian was that I realised after a bit that, that, that it actually was true. That what Jesus said happened, really happened. And especially that um, I could find no other explanation for what had happened to do with the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle said in his book, in his short story, The Silver Blaze, that, you know, Watson is the kind of dopey guy who never gets it and is always, like, puzzled. So Holmes is asked by Watson, how did you deduce that? And Holmes says, once you've eliminated all other possibilities... Whatever else remains must be the truth. So if you look at the evidence, and as Christians we invite you to kick the tyres, poke holes, do anything you like, then to me, the only possible logical explanation was that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. Okay. So you went to university sort of as a signed-up Christian. This is what you believe. You, you read the history? history yeah, very okay. useful subject for banking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm from Australia. It always kills me. In, in England, you ask a banker what they did, and they, yeah. they probably did like dance theory. That may explain, rather or something. <laughs> that like, may explain 2008, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had all these historians and classicists trying to rob the yeah. banks. Yeah. That's right. You were reading so much Cicero. Um, so, okay, so you were Christian going through university, but you come out into the graduate program. That was your first job, was it? Yeah. Was it in Berkeley? Yeah. And, and, and you've had your professional life as a Christian. Um, haven't you read the Bible, Jeremy? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't Jesus say that, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And doesn't Jesus sort of call money unrighteous mammon, which is a terrific translation, I think? And, and you know, money is the root of all evil. Isn't that in the Bible? Like, how do you square that? It is. And I would say that banking is actually a good thing. I mean, bankers are mentioned in, in the Bible several times, not, not in an unfavorable way. And as Christians, we're not telling people become monks and retreat into a cave and live in a hair shirt. So the Christian life is also about serving people, and banking is a way of doing that. I mean, we're here in Barclays, and Barclays was started by Christians. So Barclays was an agglomeration of Quakers who were one type of Christian banks. And Horsebank as well. Um, you know, the, the fam- not all the family by any means are Christians, but the whole ethos of the family is um, treat the customer as you would wish to be treated, which is just Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of me personally, I'm, my father had no money. I went to the local kind of box standard comprehensive. So was I coming into banking to save the world? No, I was coming here to make money, to be honest, cause I, you know, because... Yeah, we, we all, I guess maybe you're all here for charitable reasons, but I guess some of you may be here <laughs> if you like money, I would suggest. Yeah. Otherwise you might be working for charity for homeless people. I don't know, I don't want to judge you. But um, yeah, look, 
there's nothing inherently wrong with money, but it, money can be dangerous because I think all of us, and I, I put myself certainly into that, are driven by the desire to find happiness and fulfilment in life. And different people are motivated in different ways. But lots of us are motivated by the desire to make some money. And in and of itself, to feed ourselves and provide for our families, that's not wrong. But if we make it a god, if it's what we worship, and especially if we think, if only I could get so much money, Mm -hmm. I'd be happy, then that's an illusion. Failure is success at things that don't really matter. Or Jim Carrey, you know, the actor... um, he, he once said, I wish everybody could have their dreams fulfilled so that they would all see that having their dreams fulfilled doesn't make you happy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. Because mm-hmm. actually I, I misquoted that uh, Bible verse to you, didn't I? It's not, it's not money is the root of all evil, which is how we remember it. It's always uh, money is a root of all kinds of evil, but certainly not the root of all, all evil. Um, but there, there is a kind of a, a, a spiritual danger, would you say, to, to money in, in that sense? Yeah, and look, The Christian message is not that we're somehow better than other people, because we're not. The Christian message is that we're also flawed, sinful human beings, and someone has told us of a cure, if you like, in that kind of medical terminology, which we'll come on to in a minute, like a a cure for cancer. So, yeah, money can consume people, and I've seen lots of people in private banking, for example, who um, made a ton of money, you know, hundreds of millions, and they're some of the most unhappy people you you can ever meet. So... If you feel that if I could only make a bit more money, I'd be happy, I can tell you from experience, it's not true. Because one very profound experience you've had is that money cannot buy you health, for instance. Um, so can you, can you take us through um, how it was that this sort of asteroid called cancer sort of crashed yeah, into yeah, your world? Yeah, cheery story. Thanks for coming and talking on Monday <laughs> about death and cancer. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, still time to leave now if you want. <laughs> So, yeah, about five, six years ago, I felt this lump on my ribs. And being a guy, I just kind of ignored it. But my wife nagged me and said, you should go to the GP. So I went to the GP and said, yeah, it's fine. It's just a fatty lump. But anyway, we'll get it checked out. And then any of you who have been through this with family members, you get kind of bounced around. In the end, they said, okay, it's cancer. But it's curable. It's a rare type of cancer. It's a type of cancer called a sarcoma, which is um, cancer of the muscle tissue. Um, I don't want to have a kind of common or garden one. I like to have a really rare one. <laughs> kind of in fact, that I saw recently a specialist who said, you have some of the strangest symptoms I've ever seen of anyone. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, um, so I went through all kinds of treatment. Uh, this was about four or five years ago. And they said, oh, well, okay, you should be fine. So we'll come back every three months. And uh, yeah, it should be fine. So I went back to work and continued. And then about two and a half years ago, um, I was at a friend's house and I went to adjust my collar and I felt this massive lump right here on my collarbone. And, um, yeah, my kind of within 20 seconds my world collapsed because I knew what it was. Wow. But I said we were having dinner with some friends and I, I suddenly said, I'm sorry, I feel ill, I need to go home. And um, my wife, Jeanette, said, are you all right? And I said, I've got this lump. So the next day I went to the, the specialist and they ran tests. And then, yeah, and that was sort of pretty grim day as you can imagine I went back to the Marsden which is I'm sort of like camped out there at the moment yeah. if you read about a kind of NHS crisis I'm personally responsible <laughs> <laughs> I've basically hardly been out of hospital for the last five years and anyway, I went back to the hospital and they said look we're really sorry so you sit down in a little room and you can kind of tell that it's bad news because you've got all these other people that you've never seen before there 
So did you walk in the room? You sort of because if, if it's just routine, the guy says, "Oh, it's nothing." Mm. You've got four or five people mm. and a big box of tissues as well, mm. which, was, which was needed. So yeah, the, the specialist said, "Look, I'm really sorry. You've got tumours everywhere. We can't cure you. Basically, you've had it." Was, was the message? Um, What's that like? Because you know, as much as we want to distance ourselves from that moment, all of us will have a moment like that at some point, sooner or later. So I, I know you've described it as the bottom falling out of your world. Yeah. Like, what, what does that actually yeah, feel like? It's like being in a lift and suddenly the floor opens up and you're just falling. Yeah. Right. So you, yeah, your stomach goes knotted. Yeah, and I, to be honest, I burst into tears, which yes. I'm a typical guy. I don't usually cry, but yeah. It was. So then the next question you ask is, well, how long have I got? Mm. So the guy said, well, you know, they always said, well, I could be less, could be more, but probably on average from where you are, 18 months. Well, as you can see, that was wrong. Hey, I'm here. Because that was how, how many years <laughs> that ago? That was two and a half years two ago. Two and a half years ago. So yeah. I'm glad my oncologist was incompetent. Now, he's a great guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm with him every week, seems like. I got to know him really well. But look, it's kind of a guesstimate. So what's happened in the meantime is every few months I have chemotherapy. Uh, my hair falls out. I feel bad. And then I stop doing chemo again. And mm. uh, my hair grows back and I feel... You know that that when I do chemo, that shrinks the tumors, and when I stop, they grow again. So it's a bit like kind of pushing a boulder up the hill. Mm-hmm. You pause to take a breath, and the boulder starts rolling back on you. What sort of horizon, therefore, are you living towards? Do you just have to take it a day at a time? Scan or? to scan. Yeah. So if you put scan and anxiety together, you get scanxiety. So mm-hmm. That's what I have. So. Yeah, the most nervous I'm sitting is when I'm sitting in the waiting room, every which I do every six to eight weeks, waiting for the results. <laughs> yeah. See how we're doing. Yeah. And what is it particularly that you would put your finger on as the fear? What do you? What are you? Yeah, afraid I mean, of? from a Christian perspective, I'm completely convinced that when I die, I'll go to be with the Lord Jesus. But process of getting there is kind of ugly and any of you have been in a hospice or in a cancer hospital you know that it's pretty grim so I would compare it a bit to like going on a fantastic holiday to the Seychelles or somewhere brilliant which is great but you have to go through Heathrow Airport which is appalling (laughs) (laughs) so cancer hospices are kind of like the equivalent of Terminal 3 or whatever so yeah Yeah. that's so I'm afraid to die and I don't want to I would rather live Mm. Uh, in the Bible, there's a man called Paul who said, I don't really mind, but he, I guess he's a lot holier than me. And um, one of the reasons is I've got children and mm. married, so it's distressing when you have to... I mean, my wife is sitting next to me, and it's very distressing to have to go and tell your children what I've just told you, and yeah. they get upset, you know, and that, that's upset. How are they coping? Yeah, they're okay. They're, 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 you know, they're all at university, and they react in different ways. My older son, who's a lovely guy and I know loves me dearly, when I first told him I got cancer, I wanted to tell him he had a Taiwanese exchange student with him and I couldn't get Nat away from this guy to tell him so in the end, in desperation I took my iPad and I said, Nat, if you've got a minute I've got a problem with my iPad, could you come in the next room? So I lured him away and told him cancer, blah blah blah. So I said have you got any questions? He said so there's nothing wrong with your iPad. There's <laughs> <laughs> no, good news and there's bad news. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that was actually a lot easier to deal with than maybe some of the others who are um, in floods of tears. But um, yeah, that, the, the single hardest thing about cancer is the effect it has on those around you. So you're a Christian. You believe that there is a good God, and this is not good. This is the opposite of good. 
how do you put together a good God and a suffering world, and, and in particular your, your personal suffering? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd look at that in two ways, Glenn. So, in, in a general and a specific way. So, in general, Christians believe that there is a God who made the universe and everything in it, and who is in total control of everything. But that we're in a mess, and the world is a mess. And you know, yeah, if it's not cancer, it's something else. Just look at the newspapers. But the Christian message is that God didn't leave us in a mess. He actually came into the mess to sort it out, to rescue us from it. Um, and more than that, actually he came himself in the form of Jesus Christ, who Christians believe is God, and that Jesus suffered. Mm. So that God isn't some remote, cold sort of being who just creates the universe. No, he comes and identifies with us and actually suffered in a way far more than any of us know. And also he... You know, suffering is, is a result in a way of sin mm-hmm. and of the fact that we've done things wrong. But Jesus was the perfect person. When he was hanging on the cross, there was a dying thief next to him who said, well, we've done wrong, but this man has never done any wrong. Mm-hmm. So I feel there is a solution to suffering. I guess also being a Christian is not an insurance policy, sadly. <laughs> I can't whip it out and say, oh, I'm a Christian. No, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. So the key question for me is, yeah, do I trust God? that he's doing this for a reason and I can honestly say I do and to me that's like as a small child you put your hand in the hand of your parent as you cross a busy road mm-hmm. and that God will bring me to the other side mm-hmm. and I'm, ha- I'm happy to trust him mm-hmm. yeah. but he's taking you through a very dark valley you know Psalm 23 says you know though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death what, what, what does that I guess in one sense Everyone is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Death, death overshadows all yeah. of us. But you're in a particularly dark part of the valley. Yeah, I mean, you haven't finished the line, though, the quote, because yeah. it says, so when I, yeah, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be with you. Right. So God's promise to us and to anyone who believes in him is, I'll be with you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, the last thing he said to his disciples was, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the age. So as a Christian know that God himself is with you and yeah there is fear of death and I'm, af- I'm afraid of death the process of dying I think Woody Allen said I don't mind the thought of my death I just don't want to be around when it happens so that's, <laughs> that's kind of that was a joke <laughs> <laughs> I love that's what, that's what I feel but there's a story in the Bible where Jesus is asleep in a boat and his disciples um, are in a huge storm and they think they're going to drown and they're terrified it's on Lake Galilee and um, in the end, they kind of roughly shake Jesus awake because they're so afraid and say, you know, don't you care if we drown? Jesus gets up and he says to the storm, be still. Mm. If any of you know anything about sailing, that's a supernatural miracle because suddenly a dead calm. Now, the wind might drop, but you'll see the lake is chopped up. It takes a long time to calm down. But then he says the disciples were even more afraid they were even more afraid then because they began to dawn on them, who is this? Who, who, who is this? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So actually, our fear, fear is maybe the wrong, maybe reverence or awe for God actually enables us to, to cope with death. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, death is a terrible thing to have to face. But, Sorry to be cheery again on a Monday evening. The death rate in this room is 100%. (laughs) 
I knew you'd like that one. And um, Benjamin Franklin famously said, you can avoid everything in life except for death and taxes. Well, having worked for Credit Suisse in Switzerland, I can tell you that's not altogether true. <laughs> I'm sure Barclays Rob never did that. But people do avoid successfully even some of them taxes, but we can't avoid death. And um, Eddie Izzard, the comedian, who probably some of you have seen on TV, he was recently interviewed in The Guardian. And he said... Um, my whole life has been really ruined or overshadowed by the death of my mother when, um, when I was nine. And um, Eddie said, um, if only someone had once come back from beyond the grave to tell us there's something there. That is the Christian claim. Mm. You have to decide if it's true, but that is the Christian claim. Mm. That one person did come back from beyond the grave. Mm. And more than came back, actually even defeated death. And we started to go through death. But the Christian offer is eternal life. And who doesn't want, who doesn't want that? So you might want that to be true. And of course you're going to want that to be true. But how do you know it's not a fairy tale to help you sleep at night? Yeah. How do you know it's true? Yeah. So um, the reason I believe it's true is because I think the evidence points in that direction. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when you're very ill, that is a kind of acid test <laughs> Do you actually believe what you say you believe before you were ill? And I can honestly say I do, and that I'm completely convinced that Jesus did rise from the dead, and obviously we've got Easter in two weeks. And that, friends, is, is the central claim of the Christian faith. Because if it's not true, if it's just a trick or something else, then it's just a nice story like you know King Arthur or something, or Robin Hood, it's fine, but it doesn't mean anything. Mm. If it is true, though... And I'm just asking you to entertain in your minds that maybe, maybe it is true and that the facts support that. Then it's just not whistling in the dark or a wishful hope or a nice thing for somebody who's in kind of, a, you know, the last chance saloon mm. that actually it's life changing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask one last question uh, to you. Uh, some people will be here uh, brought along by a friend or colleague and, and perhaps they're thinking about uh, investigating Christianity, taking things a little bit further. Um, Tell us, why should we do that and how would we go about it? Yeah. Why you should do it is because if what I've said is true, it's the most important thing in life. In fact, it's more important than everything else combined. And it's certainly worth, say, half an hour of your time. What I would suggest if, if you're here with a, with a friend who's, who's brought you along, and thank you so much for coming and, again, listening to cheery discussion on cancer and chemotherapy and other fun stuff, is, you know, Jesus had... Uh, Followers who four, there's four eyewitness accounts, and you can see it's quite small. And this is one of them, written by a man called John, who was a fisherman. And in it, there's a lot of things that stories about what Jesus did, including there's a story about Jesus raising a man called Lazarus from the dead in front of hundreds of witnesses. So, I would invite you to to look at the evidence for yourself. This was written within 20, 30 years of Jesus's death in about, probably about 60, 70 AD. And the earliest manuscript copy of this is in Manchester in the Rylands Library. It's from about 110. So there's a very short gap between Jesus' death and the first extant manuscript. I mean, it probably was written down before that, but it hasn't been, hasn't been kept. And just sit and chat about it with the, um, with the friend who's, who's, who's brought you. That, that's, that's what I love to do. In between treatment, I just go around to friends of mine in the city and 
we chat about John's gospel and I try and answer their questions. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Fantastic. And we'll give opportunities for people to be able to sign up to those uh, John's gospel uh, book clubs in a second. Uh, but we're going to invite you back after my little talk. Uh, but let's uh, give a round of applause. For John. <laughs> for a couple of minutes on that story uh, that Jeremy just referenced, uh, the story about Lazarus. And uh, you can find it in one of these John's Gospels. Why don't we all uh, take uh, a moment to pick one of these John's Gospels up. Uh, this is our gift to you. If you don't have one of these at home, this is yours. Uh, please take it. And uh, we hope that in a few minutes you will get excited about John's biography of Jesus in such a way that you'll want to take it home and keep on reading for yourself. Uh, but I just want to uh, reference that same story uh, that Jeremy was talking about. It's on page 29. It's halfway through this biography of Jesus written by a close companion of Jesus called John. This is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, it's the famous story of Lazarus and his funeral. Jesus famously shows up late to a funeral. And instantly, I think that can have resonance with us as we try to think about a good, a good God and a suffering world. Jesus shows up late to the funeral, and everybody is grieving. Let me just read to you uh, from uh, page 29. We'll, we'll dive in halfway through the story with the heading, Jesus comforts the sisters of Lazarus. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After he had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. 
Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So here is this famous story. Jesus shows up late to this disaster. Because originally, Lazarus was just ill. And he was told, Jesus was told that Lazarus was ill. And he delays in coming to visit this man. He comes late. Lazarus is now dead. The nightmare situation has eventually. And as he shows up to the funeral, Jesus weeps. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. Well, that's the shortest verse anyway. Jesus wept. Uh, it's an incredible scene where God shows up amongst first century mourners and he outmourns them all, which is quite a feat. If you think of Middle Eastern first century mourners, there would be professional mourners there, people who are paid to come and mourn. And Jesus, who, as Jeremy was saying, we believe is God come to earth. He shows up at the funeral. He's late. Everybody's crying. And he weeps. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is an interesting story, don't you think? In this story, we plunge down far deeper than we would ever have imagined that we would go. And then we get raised up far higher than we ever dared imagine. This is the, the story of the Christian view of the world. But actually, Jesus enters into our world, and he proves to us that God is not immune from the pain. That's the first thing to, to realize from this story. God is not immune from the pain. When we ask about a, a good God in a suffering world... John's Gospel will assure us that God is not immune from the pain. I don't know how you were introduced to the problem of suffering at school. I know when I studied the religious education at school, my, my teacher taught me that God is omnipotent and omniscient and uh, omnipresent and omnibenevolent and he's uh, omnivorous and he's ambidextrous and he's trifocal, he's double-jointed and he's all these things. And, and at that stage, I remember thinking that this just sounds like a game that philosophers are playing. It sounds like we're trying to just imagine a perfect being and pump him up on steroids and thrust him up into the heavens and as though that is what God is like. Well, Christians don't so much play the philosophical game. We don't think up gods. According to John's Gospel, God comes down and reveals himself to us and he reveals himself to us in a man of sorrows. That's who Jesus is. He's the Son of the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, and he is revealing what God is like as a man who stoops and serves and suffers and weeps. This is an interesting God, don't you think? This God is not immune from the pain. I remember reading uh, a few years ago words from John Stott, who was a minister uh, of the gospel here in London, just down the road. He wrote a, a great talk last century called The Cross of Christ. It's one of the great Christian books of the last century. Uh, and he said this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross, the cross where Jesus came and died. He said, the only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God of the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I had to turn away, and in my imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, 
nailed through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me, says John Stott. As a Christian, I can say, yeah, that, that's the God for me, the God who is not immune from the pain. Christians don't play the philosophical game where we just imagine a perfect being. We see God in the face of Jesus, and here is a God who interacts with our suffering. He shows up at the funeral, and he starts weeping. Isn't that extraordinary? When he saw the Jews who had come along with Mary also weeping, he weeps. And he snorts with indignation at death. That's uh, the way you can translate these verses. But as he comes to the grave, he is not just sad, he's also mad at death. We tend to make our peace with death as best we can. We try to accommodate it and, and make space for it. When Jesus shows up to the funeral, he treats death like it's an enemy. And he's outraged by it. Even a few minutes of death are too much for the Son of God. He, he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus, and yet death is an enemy. He snorts with indignation. He cries alongside all the other mourners. So the first thing to know about this issue of a good God and a suffering world is that God is not immune from the pain. But also the Bible insists that we are not immune from the blame. According to the Bible, we live in a fallen world because we are fallen people. Uh, we uh, thought uh, earlier, as Jeremy uh, spoke of smuggling Bibles into the uh, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, spoke of the labor camps that many Christians were suffering in. There was a great Christian called Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was in uh, one of these gulags, one of these uh, labor camps. And he wrote this uh, incredible book called The Gulag Archipelago. And as he's there, suffering in intense ways that we can only dream about, have nightmares about, there is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he spends his time actually thinking, why is he here? And he, and he doesn't just conclude, it's because of Hitler, it's because of Stalin. Somehow he recognizes that there's a darkness in his own soul that is somehow connected to the darkness out there. That somehow he is not immune from the blame in this dark world. We can all point to injustices, pain and suffering in the world. But Solzhenitsyn came to see that there was a darkness that was also reflected somehow in his own heart. He famously said, that, you know, wouldn't it be convenient if you could divide up the world into the, the baddies over there and the goodies over here, and that we are safely on the right side of the line? But Solzhenitsyn said that the line dividing good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart. Somehow, even Solzhenitsyn can say, somehow that the, the darkness of the gulag is somehow reflected in the darkness of his own heart. It's a, it's a deeply mysterious thing, but the Bible insists that the world is not the way it should be, because we are not the way that we should be. There's, there's been a fall from the good creation that God has made. And actually, that is our experience of this world. Every experience you've ever had of suffering has been an experience of fallenness. It's been an experience of something was good, and then it got spoiled. Isn't that everybody's experience of, of fallenness, of suffering in this world? I was once debating the uh, chief executive of the British Humanist Association, uh, and uh, we were having this debate on whether God is worthy of worship. And he spent his entire ten minutes uh, in, in his opening remarks talking about parasites. And he sort of said, you know, in this world there's this kind of parasite and it causes that kind of suffering. And there's this kind of parasite and it causes that kind of suffering. And he just went through all the parasites he could list. And then at the end he just said, good God, I think not. And he sat down. 
So what do you say? Well, I just got up and I said, well, let's think harder about parasites. What is a parasite? A parasite is this secondary thing that comes along and attaches itself to an original and life-giving good. It's something that's life-giving and the parasite comes along later and spoils it. That's our experience of parasites. It's actually our experience of everything that is evil in this world. There is good health that then gets spoiled by ill health. There are relationships that then get spoiled by jealousy or pride. Every experience we have of this suffering world testifies to the Bible's story. The Bible's story is that there has been a good creation that has been spoiled. But the good news is, Jesus comes into this world to give us a real problem with suffering and a real solution to suffering. I'll just finish with this. He gives us a real problem with evil and a real solution to evil. First of all, he gives us a real problem with evil. It's a very good thing to have a problem with evil. It would be dreadful if we didn't have a problem with evil, wouldn't it? And yet actually the existence of evil and suffering in this world is a tremendous pointer to the existence of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but C.S. Lewis was actually, uh, he was converted from his atheism to belief in God because of the existence of suffering in this world. It might sound like a counterintuitive thing, but he, he said, if I, if, if I, ex- if I think that uh, evil exists, what am I judging evil against? You see, if everything is random, nothing could be wrong. He gave the illustration of that if there's no such thing as a straight line, then there's also no such thing as a crooked line, is there? If you've never had any idea of a straight line, there's no such thing as crooked lines. Lines are just lines, right? But if we judge a line to be crooked, it must be because we have the idea of a straight line. And if we judge something in this world to be evil, it must be because there is an ultimate good. There is a straight line. So actually, the Christian has the right to get outraged at evil and to call it evil. It's not just grotesque, it's not just painful, it's not just unfortunate, it's wrong. And that's why you might have noticed that these sisters, they come to Jesus and they both say the same thing. If you had been here, Jesus, this would not have happened. Which is an extraordinary statement of faith, and it's a complaint. Interesting duality there. It's a statement of faith. If you'd been here, Jesus, this wouldn't have happened. But because they trust that Jesus has the ability to end suffering, they can actually bring it to him as a complaint and say, Jesus, where were you? This is malpractice. You're late. Where have you been? And the Bible is actually full of complaints. I don't know if you know this, but you can open up your Bible to the middle, and there is the biggest book in the Bible. It's called the Book of Psalms. There are 150 songs, and they're all prayers to God. One third of them are psalms of lament. Complaints to God, where people are saying, God, it's a hell of a life sometimes. Where are you? Actually, in the Bible, people complain about evil because evil is wrong. It's wrong with a capital W because there is rights with a capital R. Jesus comes into the world and he enables you to have a problem, a real problem with evil. But he also gives us a real solution, a real solution to this suffering. Isn't that beautiful the way that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? What a wonderfully poignant scene as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. They, they take off the grave clothes. And what's the first thing that Lazarus would have seen as he'd risen from the dead? He would have seen the, the, the tear-stained face of Jesus. What a beautiful thing to see the tear-stained face of Jesus. And within a matter of weeks, Jesus himself will have gone through his own death 
and out the other side. And that's Jeremy says. Look at the evidence. Uh, we're, we're not here telling you to just trust in a fairy tale to keep you warm and, and happy at night. We are telling you to investigate the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Because we believe that within weeks of this happening, Jesus himself went through death. And Christians believe he's like the, the needle that goes through the black shroud of death and comes out the other side. And if we're connected to him by faith, then we too get pulled through that same trajectory, through that shroud, through that valley of the shadow of death, and out the other side. So that's the Christian claim. Now you've got to investigate it. Now you've got to see whether that's true. But without Jesus, I submit to you that you're not able to have the problem with suffering that you need, and you're not able to have the solution to suffering that you need. But with Jesus, well, he says this in John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 